coming. Um, my name's Beck Conroy. I'm an artist, but I'm also wearing my Narva cap tonight. And if you've noticed on the social medias or the socials, should say, um, uh, Narva have a very good-looking campaign at the moment uh, called Artistic Courage, which is calling on parties to invest in artistic courage um, to amplify uh, a vision for the future and the kind of vision that we want to see for not just artists but for, for everyone, um, but I guess in particular for artists because NAVA is an organisation representing artists. Tonight we are coming together to do a bit of dreaming, uh, do a, a bit of big thinking um, outside of the election cycle, but of course we're very aware that we are in an election cycle or coming up to an election, and uh, it's, it's, I don't know, not, not particularly exciting, but perhaps could be exciting for, in terms of art policy, there could be some, some changes if, there's, if there is a change in, in government. I guess tonight, the, the point about bringing everyone, all the fantastic people here tonight, which I'll, who I'll introduce in, in a moment, is to think about what we want for the future in Australia, and in particular what artists can contribute to that or what artists bring to that, to that conversation. And that includes all the other things that impact on being an artist, such as housing, uh, thinking about tax, thinking about healthcare, uh, thinking about um, all the things that we're embedded in. And in particular, thinking about the country that we're on, which is Gadigal country. So I want to start by acknowledging that we are on Gadigal country, part of the uh, 29 clans that make up the Eora Nation, and to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land, uh, past, present and emerging, and to also acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people in the room tonight who join us. I also wanted to mention that uh, hearing Mayuka Gori talk about uh, acknowledgement of country the other night on the town hall stage for the Sydney Writers' Festival, uh, they made the point that actually we acknowledge country, but we don't have permission. As we, as we sit here, it's good to remember that we don't actually have permission uh, to be here. So just bearing, bearing that in, in mind. So tonight's premise is to come up with uh, a redesign by the end of the night <laughs> and to plan a battle for tomorrow morning. <laughs> okay? Uh, so before we get going with the war plan, uh, I just want to introduce uh, our amazing people here on our, it's a panel, but it's a circular <laughs> yeah, arrangement, a circular arrangement. Um, so I'm going to go in the list that I have here. We have uh, Jahan Kanga, who is, uh, this is hilarious, he's a commercialization specialist with KPMG and a multidisciplinary scientist working on supporting the development technology for social impact. But <laughs> Jahan is also a former artistic director and creative producer who's worked with um, some very good companies at the Kalari Centre for Movement Arts India, the Song Company and Curious Works. So we gonna, I'm going to ask you about the um, commercialisation and deep tech later on. Um, uh, of course, Louise Crabtree is here, uh, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. Um, among other things, Louise has been pioneering the community land trust model uh, in Australia. And her research focuses on sustainable community-driven housing developments in Australia. And this has also involved work with Indigenous communities and housing models that have been developed with them. Uh, Louise is also working on a new initiative west of Sydney, which I'm hoping that you can talk about uh, tonight. Um, Beck Dean, the end there. Beck Dean is, uh, Dr. Beck Dean, is a curator, <laughs> <laughs> newly crowned, um, is a curator, writer, educator who's worked for some of the hottest interdisciplinary co contemporary arts organisations in Australia over the past two decades, producing and curating events, um, performance space, ACT, PICA, among others. Um, currently, she's at the National Institute of Experimental Arts at UNSW as a postdoc and working as a curator on the Big Anxiety Festival. Her recent independent curatorial project, The Patient, the medical subject in contemporary art, has just finished a massive tour, Australian tour. Um, and she's also on numerous boards, too numerous <laughs> to mention here. I was quite amazed, actually. I was like, my God. Uh, so, 
Alex Wizzer. There you are. Um, Alex the Whiz Bang Wizzer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made that up the other day. Uh, yeah, I did. I crowned you. I crowned you. Um, so Alex is one of the co-directors of the Cemento Festival, which you may be aware of, um, which was co you co-founded it in 2013. Yep, in the regional New South Wales town of Tandos, where he now lives with his family. Uh, previously, Alex was director and founder of the Index Gallery in uh, Newtown, where he, oh, when he's not making big things happen in small towns, he's also a photographer and um, specialising in art documentation, event photography and photojournalism. Uh, Jess Cook, there you are. Uh, Jess <laughs> is, is from here, uh, 107 Projects. And I did ask you about changing this bio, but I'm just going to read it out. Um, <laughs> I can just make <laughs> it up. Um, so Jess, I met Jess <laughs> when Jess was working in, well, working and playing or being at Hibernian House back in the salad days when the real estate was still bearable. We could still run warehouse parties. Um, and she thrives on collaboration, curiosity, and adventure. Her passion and playfulness drive her love of using creativity to build stronger communities, of which 107 is a really excellent example. Uh, we have uh, Nadina Dixon. Uh, Nadina Dixon is a Wiradjuri, Ewan, and Gadigal uh, multidisciplinary artist working in textiles, short, short video photography, and animation. And Nadina has a postgraduate degree in Indigenous Arts Management and also founded Mara Mara, an independent uh, indigenous arts and cultural company. So, welcome everyone, and thanks everyone for being here. Yay. So, we have an hour together. Um, so, each of the guests have been brought together tonight because of your art background, but also because of the other areas that you're, that you're working in. Uh, and we also have some things going around for the artist um, online advocacy toolkit that Nava put together, which is also very, very excellent that you can um, pick up and take home. Um, but tonight we're going to do a little bit more big thinking about uh, what are the things that artists need to make life possible and are these things different to what the rest of the community want? Rather, what do we share with the rest of the community, but also what is unique and specific about being an artist and what are the things that we could offer to the community in terms of how we would run the economy or how we would design places of care or how we would design cities? So we're going to dwell in that space tonight and try to see ourselves uh, connected to all the other parts of the world and see what we can come up with um, to lift our spirits <laughs> about this um, sausage fest, I mean democracy <laughs> sausage <laughs> election coming up. Um, so I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start with you Nadina. Um, you're a, a local artist in this, in this place and I've known you for, oh god, maybe a couple of decades yeah. maybe? Whoa. Um, so <laughs> I've seen you working as an artist, as a member of the community, but also as uh, a parent of um, three kids doing it, yeah, four kids, yeah, four, four. Um, so I'm interested to know, like, what what is it that's made it possible for you to continue being an artist and having a practice? Yep, um, just really for me it's just been the, the strength of our community of artists, um, you know, that constant nourishment and that mentoring and... You know, I, I sort of like to think about when I was a kid, you know, and all the freedom fighters sort of things were happening and, and the old people would, you know, wait for another, yet another election. You know, we've seen a lot of elections. And the old people would always say, well, um, the government comes and goes and every year it changes and we're still here. And I think, you know, that's the same as us really. And then my daughter, you know, she's an animator, she talks about you know, this post-apocalyptic reality. And, you know, if anyone's going to survive, it's artists, because we're scavengers that can <laughs> <laughs> make magic out of anything. <laughs> you know, so I think we're just <laughs> intrinsically creative, not just with what we make, but how we live. And I think we live as creative beings, and our art is the extension or the, the visible outcome of, of that process. 
And it's a, uh, I want to point out an absence, but Angie, um, uh, if she was here tonight, I was going to ask her about um, the, the work that Angie's been doing with her company, Old Ways New, and the particular approach that she has um, been applying to um, robotics and AI and thinking about data from an Indigenous knowledge systems perspective. And what's really clear about the work that she's been doing is how, um, how completely, you know, holistic and how much sense that that way of thinking about the world. And so I'm wondering, Nadina, like if um, thinking about how much, how much of that do you think has enabled you to um, survive as an artist in terms of how you understand the world? Yeah. Um well, I'm lec lecturing currently at um, UTS on decolonising methodologies in art and design, and um, it's really about a f having a focus of embedding some more Indigenous perspectives into that space, and just to offer a toolkit, you know, of, of how can we maybe see things from another space. Um, and I mean, I grew up in very distinct realities, so I believe we all live within multi realities and we're, we're multi um, we're multi-layered beings so a lot of my childhood um, was spent sort of under the radar um, in Aboriginal communities and my um, elders didn't actually speak English so I went to school speaking language and it's a completely d different economy because there's no shops you live in rugged bushland you need to be able to track and read snake tracks and survive with knowledge. So my people, all the elders were, you know, using the star maps and the alignment of the planets to know when the fish season was coming or we would starve to death. And then, you know, growing up under my grandfather, Dr. Charles Chicka Dixon being an activist and, you know, the reality of um, living within the, that sort of um, pretty intense dynamic and then kind of moving across communities but in some ways being invisible and then sort of emerging in other ways. Um, I think helped me to feel like, you know, um, it was about resourcing and I think we're still, we're all doing that as artists. Yeah, like we're resourcing, we're kind of like, oh, what's that? How can I use this? How can I, you know, and borrowing and then skilling up each other. And and that's you know that whole collective mentality as well that that we as a tribe of people you know we we're, we're able to kind of make things happen yeah, and I think that's only strength in numbers. Yeah, so there's a um, kind of embedded there's a kinship system there that kind of makes sense of everything makes sense within that um, within that holistic understanding of um, of the universe really and community so Lou I just want to ask you know how much of that informed um, the work that you did in community and do you want to maybe start off talking a little bit about what the community like really a nutshell I know that's difficult to talk about the community land trust model in you know bullet points but <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about that and and particularly around like how that model moved into Indigenous communities or how it was received? Sure. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess, I mean, it categorically resonates. I mean, my, the reason I became interested in community land trusts, which are increasingly sort of seen as an affordable housing uh, model, uh, was actually because of their basis in the idea of the stewardship of land. Um, so it wasn't sort of uh, conceptualised in terms of ownership, it was conceptualised in terms of, well, the land is a common legacy that we have an obligation to uh, care for and thinking about what that stewardship looks like in terms of community wellbeing now but also into the future. Um, and because I'm a geographer by training, so, uh, but prior to that I had this sort of, I started out studying to be a vet and then a conservation ecologist and blah, blah, blah. And the longer I looked at uh, ecosystems, the more I realised, hang on, this is about people because <laughs> the, 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 the problems that ecosystems are facing are fundamentally because of how mainstream society relates to place. 
and the non-human uh, and what we think our place in that is. Uh, and so that idea of collectivised stewardship of land, particularly in an urban context, really resonated for me in terms of, well, this is potentially how we can live in the context of things like mass extinctions and these things that are coming at us now uh, that I don't think dominant property paradigms are remotely adequate or appropriate for dealing with. I, I don't think they're appropriate or adequate for much at all other than the you know, global financial transactions through property. Um, so essentially how CLTs operate is an organisation holds land out of the market in perpetuity. Um, if you have housing on that land, you then, uh, you occupy that house or that unit or what have you, but it's at a permanently restricted price. So you're never going to speculate on land, it doesn't matter if you win the lottery, that, you know, nothing will ever change the fact that that property is seen as uh, a right uh, for future generations as well as yourself. So there's a lot of relational understandings bound up into it. What's the relationship between this place and the future occupants of this place um, and those who came before us? So it's, I mean, I see property law in Australia as like the worst form of collective performance art, you know? It's like, we'll all pretend that, is saying something. that this makes sense and it's somehow <laughs> preordained. Yeah, let's all like totally buy into that. And it's just nonsense, particularly as you say, we haven't even got permission. Like the whole thing's such a furphy. I mean, the high court thing at the moment about can we deport Aboriginal people who don't have citizenship? It's just like, what the <laughs> actual? You know, um, so how would so you see that? <laughs> how would you see that working? Like, if that, if if it happened in Australia, a community land trust model mm. where you take the land out of the equation, so people are buying a built form, they're buying property, but the land itself mm. is not allowed to be speculated upon; it's held in trust. Why would, why would we be interested in that model? Like, how would we sell that? Huh. Um, I think it. Well, historically, very difficult thing to sell because historically the dominant narrative was, well, we're all making gazillions off property, so what's the problem? Um, we're all making so all, much Yeah, money. I know, right? And, yeah, the, <laughs> the fact that housing policy is largely made by people who have multiple properties um, is a key sort of problem there. Uh, but I think increasingly it resonates so much with not only the housing affordability problem that everyone is in becoming increasingly aware of, but that... I don't know. I, I, I look at the um, kids taking to the streets for the climate change rallies and I think times are changing. People are not okay with this idea that everything can be bought and sold, particularly not the non-human world around us. Like, it, that's not okay and people are increasingly realising, no, that's actually not a good enough relationship to be having with the places that we are inhabiting. Um, so... It's interesting because historically I largely had to talk about affordable housing to get traction with policymakers, but I think that that more fundamental basis of the CLTs as collective stewards of place mm. is getting increasing traction because it's what we need and it's resonating with people. Because cities need affordable housing because they mm. don't function without, without it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and in the US, they've, you know, it's been a very successful model in the US. Um, there's something like 250-odd of, yeah, yeah. of them. Yeah, um, and there's recently been one set up in the UK, in, right in the middle of London, um, and they actually managed to get all three prime ministerial candidates in the build-up to the last election to say, yes, categorically, we will commit to this if we get in, because it was becoming such a critical issue just in terms of the voter base of people who were locked out of stable housing. So crisis is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> so who can we look to in the Australian political landscape for good housing policy or who would this have traction with this idea or who have you found has been receptive receptive to it yeah um it's been some of the well the greens are categorically on board they understand the housing affordability uh issue substantially they've got a really robust understanding of it um, historically, I have had really good conversations with Labor at a federal level and at a state level. Um, so I do hold hope for a change of government at the next election because I think they could, you know, they've already indicated they will reappoint a housing minister. Uh, and that's a crucial first step. We've got to have a federal housing minister to have these discussions in a meaningful way because at the moment it's, it's, there's no coherent federal policy. 
sounds a lot like the arts. <laughs> yeah, there is some, some resonance there. Um, so moving out of the city into uh, the regional parts, um, is housing an issue for artists in regional parts, Alex? Um, no, it's not. It's really cheap. So, <laughs> and come on out there. Yeah, I <laughs> know. I I do this a lot actually, and it's been very successful. We've we've had <laughs> we've had twelve artists, you know, and uh, I think about nine of them have bought houses and candles, but we've had they they move out, you know. It's, it's a real estate scheme. It, it it's <laughs> a mental. We are well. One of the great things that I just heard recently was well I was sitting at the um uh so we have an Aboriginal cultural center that's opening. And I was sitting around there, and apparently going around the pubs is that the, the Aboriginal people are, are buying up the town, uh, which is uh, like some of the best news I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> is this a rumor, or it's actually happening? Well, they, they've, they've actually been fairly successful at, at, at uh, raising money, and they, they bought a, a very large property on the main street, and they're opening a culture center there, and then they bought the vacant li lot right next to there, and they're gonna have a, a garden uh, and I'm not sure what they're going to do with it, but they'll they'll do some amazing stuff. So, they're yeah they you know they liked it. They they, in fact they proposed a, a real estate a real estate agency. <laughs> they said they were going to open a real estate agency called Pay the Rent. Yeah. That that has to happen. That has <laughs> to it's <laughs> not even a joke. No, I mean, it's is not a joke. It's a good idea. Rent. Talk about a policy, right? Yeah, there we have one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, what are the issues in the in the regional areas that artists share with? I mean, how how do you talk to local people yeah. um, about? I mean, you're you're working in a community. So, what are the things that affect yeah. that community that artists also so share? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think you know one of the defining qualities of Candles is that it you know it is a community. It's a very different community than what you what what you grew up in, and my relationship to it is very different. I mean, we came in as very much the other, and uh, the reaction to us was, um, you know, it was shocking uh, on both sides. On you know, and and understandably so, and. Um, I, I think you know, f for me, that sh that played a, a, a big part in, in in shifting my own perception as an artist. Um, and I, I I was thinking about this coming up, you know, about the first festival and what I really loved about the first festival, is that we were all on edge and we were all scared. Um, <laughs> we were really scared, and and really we were just scared that we were going to go in and do the wrong thing, and so the work was I thought incredibly sensitive because you had all of these artists. Who were who were basically taking risks, so they were all really on at, at the top of their game, and and but but it, what had it done was was really kind of made them hone their attention to the other, and this is a you know it's a working class regional town, it's very conservative, um, it's not you know it's not our culture at all, and ideologically it's very much aligned on, you know on the other side of politics. And yet the ability of artists to, and especially the first festival, but the other festivals where we've seen really Im amazing developments out of that, was that, but that first one is when I, I became really aware of how much of the work was trying to say, to, was, was trying to look at how the town might be looking at the artists. And, and speaking, and there was one, um, um, uh, there was one work by Koche, uh, uh, um, is he's since he's since passed away, Daniel? Thank you. Um, uh, he made this work, which was called the Cultural Refinement Facility, um, in which he he basically created a a, a machine and it had a, a conveyor belt and then a and then a, um, a a kind of just a a big kind of metal tent that he sat inside and the conveyor belt uh, you know went inside this machine and he was to sit inside of that. And uh, locals were, were invited to place cultural objects onto that uh, conveyor belt, and then he would smash them up. And it was just so, such a beautiful, like I thought, anyways, a gesture of, you know, of understanding of, of what it must have felt like and, you know, to, to, to that town uh, that all of these artists were suddenly going to be coming in. And, um, and, and this was actually kind of, it was actually kind of um, fleshed out in our um, debrief afterwards. We had, 
you know, we had basically, we invited the town to come talk to us, and I, I looked around the room at this meeting, and it was all of the people that had supported us all the way through, which was, you know, was significant. There was, there was definitely, a, a, you know, a body of people that really knew what this festival could do for the town. But there was one woman who was like, I just saw her, and she, she just looked like she'd girded her loins to come in the room. And I was like, okay, we're going to get some truth here. <laughs> and, um, and she did. She got up at one point, and she said, you know, I'm only here... Um, to uh, because my friends asked me to come and to listen to what you guys were 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 saying, but I, she said I've got a big mouth and I'm I'm not going to keep it closed. And then she just and she said to us, she said you have to realize how scary this was for our town. And 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 when I was like, well, was, oh God, you have no idea how scared we were, you know. So it was kind of this moment where you know, and, he, and I thought that was a really an important lesson for us as well because I think a lot of the time when we do cultural engagement. There are all of these protocols that are put in place that are meant to, you know, um, uh, hold the the tensions and conflicts in, you know, at a distance, so that we can get through the event without actually ruffling any feathers. And actually, because we ruffled feathers, we got an honest reply, and we were able to make an honest, you know, response to that in turn, you know. And also that you are you're you've committed to staying, yeah. so that makes a significant difference to. Uh, some of the other models of more FIFO, fly-in, fly-out kind of cultural... Yeah. And, and we've structured the festival around that. So one of the things that we really, you know, and it's always still a, a, like a project under, it's not something we congratulate ourselves as an accomplishment, but something we're constantly working towards, is that, you know, we ask all of the artists now to come up and to make work about the town, the context, the history, you know, issues of concern to the people we're talking to instead of buying a bunch of art that got made you know, in, a city, in an urban yeah. context, <laughs> dropping it on the heads of, of, of country folk mm -hmm. and expecting them to, to relate to it as the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so Jess, um, thinking about artists and making home, and making place mm -hmm. here um, and working with the local community, like what, I mean, obviously there are shared issues around gentrification, uh, rising housing prices, um, regulations around, you know, what you can do. Um, how has that been with working with the, with the community? What's been the experience of 107? And how have you been able to have some traction on some shared issues? From the very beginning, it was commu community engagement isn't some policy that we create to make us look good. It is what we do um, across everything that we do. Um, and as we grow, I, you know, today I was having a, a meeting with a founding member and, you know, it all comes back to the heart, which is a connection to place. And that connection can't happen unless there's a, a genuine 360 perception of the multiple communities and uh, new and old that we engage with. And, I, you know, when we started in 2011, on the 22nd of November when we got the keys, 21st of November, 22nd, anyway, um, there was a sense of who are these people, you know, or like what's going on? And there was this big space that was empty space. But the whole time, we we haven't changed our philosophy and we haven't changed our focus. And it was, the as a high street, it was pretty empty. There was like the pub and, um, and something that we track is our um, economic impact, our, uh, how we support our neighbours is really important. That's why we exist. So we want to help with God, Alex. We <laughs> we we are here to have a positive social, cultural, economic, and environmental impact. That's that's what that's why and how we exist. So it's important that we have got really you know we've got really shitty tools, but we've got some tools to measure those. And then we get some back you know backlash from oh, one of the conversations from a anarchist was. Oh, you've sold out, blah, blah, blah. And, blah, and I'm like, well, what? Where do you get your water from? It's surely Sydney water. Like, where do you get your... And for us, it's always been about being 
getting inside the system to change the system and maintaining our apolitical perspective and, and being that neutral space to have those really difficult conversations. I mean, like, bring on the criticism. Like, we're not, <coughs> we're not anti it. We actually embrace it because we need to have those difficult conversations. And so, yeah, the art's one part of what we do, but really it's about making a safe and inclusive space where people can talk bad shit. But you're also a surviving, you're, you're a surviving sustainable business model as well here. I mean, that's the space that you're, you're in, <laughs> having come from, a, you know, a dirty hovel of an artist-run space <laughs> in Surrey Hills. <laughs> this was pretty dirty too, Beck. Yeah. Just <laughs> it's just got a bit prettier. Um, Firescape is much better. <laughs> well, our, it's about our independence. So, with... <laughs> I don't, we don't need to suck up to any particular person in power. We don't need to, if we did, I think it would remove that inclusivity and that, that openness of all that autonomy that we have. So when, it, when we're talking about political stuff, like, I mean, obviously City of Sydney is one of our main supporters and the fact that it's, we've got an independent party at the helm of it, that's really important. Um, but for us, we don't need to play politics. Like, we need to not play people. That sounds weird. We need to, we need to play people. No, but we, we, for us, it's about people. And everything that we do is always about how artists and audience connect. That's everything. I don't, I don't care if whoever's in power, um, because the power, the power's with the people back. Start the revolution, but it is, and that's where we've, you know, like we were mentioning before, like when there wasn't, when everyone lost their funding. I mean, I say this, but it's true. We didn't have any, so it didn't affect us. At the same time, it's like now we've got a reputation, and they want to fund us. At the same time, it's like maybe we don't need your funding. That's a great position <laughs> to be in, <laughs> but I just want to be devil's avocado and point out that, um, you know, the rest, you know, the rest of the arts ecology is supported by that funding and there are benefits that flow into 107 there oh, are practicing totally. artists whose practices are sustained or part sustained by by that by that funding that's part of of that world um uh, jahan i'm gonna ask you the money question um <laughs> sure <laughs> um this is to try and make you know um tax a little bit more sexy or like you know how we would think about those kinds of things for for artists. Do you have any ideas around, you know, how we how we should be approaching, you know, uh, a tax system or a progressive tax system, or even in terms of, you know, looking at um, how those resources get shared, in, you know, how the arts even think about how those resources, you know, get shared in our sector. Yeah, I, th I think there's like there's two ways to think about it and the first is to think about arts as a sector um, and to value the arts I think it's it's um, you know it, when we look at social impact and investment that part of the reason why it's so hard for for social impact technology companies or, or any kind of organization to get funding is because a lot of what they do um, it has positive externalities but are not captured in as profit, right? They're, they're captured by the community or they're captured by the people that they're having impact on, they're having, you know, it's captured in clean water or, or um, lower carbon emissions, but there's, there's no money transaction that's attached to that. And so I think it's um, the same thing is true of the arts. The arts is huge in Australia. It's, it is one of the biggest employers in Australia, if not the biggest. Um, just in live music, live music is worth something like six billion as an as an industry. You know, the, the it has huge economic impact, but also the social impact of arts is enormous. I mean, effectively, um, arts was directly responsible for um, stemming uh, uh, sort of radicalization of young um, teenagers in the post 9/11 
world, right? So, like, there were specific organisations in Western Sydney that were tasked and funded to to deliver key arts programs, and that supported both um, decreases in homelessness, um, reduction in um, sort of uh, people with um, you know, drug users with addiction problems that would um, result in them being hospitalised. Um, and also resulted in, in um, more social cohesion in those communities. And that's a, you know, this, you know, none of that is captured, right, in, in the value of those organisations and in, in, their, in their bottom line and in their funding. And when they put applications to the Australia Council, they can't say, well, you know, we've actually supported 300 young men who were at, you know, who were, who were actually quite at risk and who could have caused a lot of harm and are now becoming extremely productive. Not productive, I mean, I don't want to use that kind of like, um, that sort of corporate sort of terminology. <laughs> it's okay, <laughs> I know, I know. It's <laughs> got to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like... Um, Gentle support but from but it's there. It's <laughs> you know, to have a positive impact in the community and, and, to, and to also see themselves as having a civic responsibility. Um, there's a... so. I think there's 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 a bit of work. We we um, Beck shared some some data, and I, and I also I've been involved in some s individual specific projects to look at, you know, project specific um, social impact um, of arts programs, not just in Australia but in Indonesia and in Hong Kong, um, associated, with, associated with micro galleries and s some other kinds of organisations. Just and some of them are tiny projects. You know, they're like they're they're projects that are. You know that they're, they're ten artists, and it's affecting a community of a thousand people. And you're looking at, you know, what is the additionality piece? Like, what what is that? What are those communities left with after that exhibition or after that dance project? And sometimes the impact can last ten years. You know, it's like it's th this stuff is you know runs really deep, and um, capturing that that value is 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 hard, but it's really worthwhile. And I think the next step is to actually look at it at on aggregate. And actually look at um, you know breaking down the different parts of the arts, not just um, commercial uh, music, which has less social impact, but still does have an impact um, uh, to you know people um, you know starting their own bands or uh, you know artist-run initiatives or small regional festivals. Like there's a lot of different kinds of programs that are out there that have really different impact. And it's 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 worth making that argument, and it's worth making that argument to people who are going to listen. Like, so it's not, you know, there's no point in like putting this stuff together for, you know, the Liberal Party. They they actually don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> like it's it's just like it's just it's true. Like it's just like don't don't waste your time, right? It's like I was I was involved in Australian Youth Music Council. We got Art Start up, and it was the the deep irony of Art Start was that no one involved in the advocacy of Art Start. There were twelve of us. Um, could work, could get access to it because none of us had degrees in the arts. Um, <laughs> so we were like, well, great. Well, someone's going to get this money, but not it's not going to be us. But but it was at least we got it forward, and and you know, like Labor was pretty keen to talk about like how hard it is to like start a career and you know basic things like buying a computer and like Macs were so expensive back then. Um, and so it was just like you know it was just like here's a bit of money, you can buy a computer, you can get. Like like a micro grant, you can get started, um, and that got trashed by Abbott. Um, and you know, like in, I think seventy thousand arts workers basically lost their careers. You know, like and it wasn't losing their jobs; it was like there was no path forward um, in that in that sort of you know when Campbell Newman and Abbott came through. So I think so. There's a sector specific kind of plan, and the policy outcome needs to be. How do we sort of fund independent workers in particular, and also key and small orgs who are really doing the, you know, key orgs and small orgs are doing the lion's share of the um, commissioning of new Australian artworks. Organisations like Opera Australia that get eighty something million um, and have never had an audit, they do no Australian new content. You know, it's or they do they do a little bits and pieces here and there, and they 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 count re you know. Recostuming Madame Butterfly as Australian cost, you know, content—it's just ridiculous, right? Um, and so it's just like you sh we should be funding, um, you know, we should be funding specific outcomes. Uh, but also, this leads me to the next point around how do we fund, you know, tens of thousands of people to be doing great work, 
Um, and it's, it, it leads me to a sort of a, something which is beyond the art sector, um, and it's more looking into like what is the you know impact of a universal basic income that can actually, you know, th these are like the really big things that, you know, sometimes when something that I've learned from sort of retiring from the arts and you know, not 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 being so involved and sort of looking at it from the outside because I was spent you know ten years doing advocacy and music council and all that stuff, and realizing that like, like a lot of Australian politics is people advocating for themselves, but not there's no it's it's really hard to get big policy stuff through because people are like well like you know why don't i get a bit of money mm. right it's like well great thing about universal basic income is that everyone gets a bit of money and you can just spend it on your flat screen tv or you can actually you know artists are the kind of people who would take that money and they run a mile right and that's great and if you can you know like tv great whatever no one cares it's 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 it doesn't have that still actually has an impact on the economy um but the social impact of funding you know tens of thousands of people who are in nfp sectors who um and especially young people who are in you know in really um marginal work or really unstable work it's like this is this is what we need to be able to sort of fill in the gaps of those portfolio careers and artists are the ones who lived the portfolio careers first, right? So, like, 10 years ago, everyone was in full-time... Well, not everyone was in full-time work, but, like, the the, the zeitgeist was full-time work. The gig economy hadn't arrived for yeah, everyone. Yeah, for everyone. It had already but arrived but yeah, for it was Yeah, it was, yeah. So, like, I was doing, I was doing, like, nine jobs, right? It was kind of like... I was, like, teaching, like, two different jobs at, at Sydney Uni, and I was, like, doing some random, like, lecturing at UTS, and then I had, like four arts gigs and I had some random other like bits and pieces of bar work and it was just like, you know, there's just, you know, it was just juggling, you know, like I had these like nine, go nine Google calendars that were sort of like, <laughs> it's, like it's like, oh no, I can't do that because I can't like make it from UTS to UCID in like m zero minutes, <laughs> you know, like it was just, but it was just, you know, you just have to deal with that and, but what would be better is to, you know, you provide people with a base level in income and then they can do a lot with it and we've seen the impact actually in some really like, funny places like Alaska where they do have a universal basic income, right? And it comes from oil money. We Australia has the biggest natural resources in the world. We have like six times as much oil or like sort of oil, gas, coal, iron in terms of like total capital value than Norway does. Every single Norwegian is a is a like a five millionaire now. Right? Then their sovereign wealth fund took ninety percent mm. tax and then they reinvested it and now they're now they're using that sovereign wealth fund to reinvest in huge carbon abatement schemes and they're, they're going to be the leaders in that field but they're, they're not carbon abatement schemes to you know for, for funsies and whatever they're going to be making money off it at, at a you know really good return um and clearly there are some problems with that in terms of moving into a you know the sixth great mass extinction um yep. obviously for extraction economies but just to uh recap on um what you have been talking about seems like there is a distinct lack of courage or a kind of a courageousness around what is the value that artists bring to the economy or to the world? How do we capture that? Um, and interestingly, uh, Nava hosted, co-hosted an event in Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago that specifically dealt with that, looking at what is the data on the impact that arts have, or specifically it was about cultural policy, but a lot of it was about that, about reading the data and measuring the, the impact. And I just wanted to pose, you know, there are some potential problems with that in terms of instrumentalizing the arts towards these kinds of other economic, you know, aims. Um, but just panning out a little bit and thinking more holistically about care and coming to Bechtin um, at the end, Dr. Bechtin. Uh, and Joshua in the house. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, so much of the arts is nebulous, you know, and whilst we can kind of get these concrete, you know, we can evidence the impact that the arts have, um, but a lot of it is, you know, nebulous and holistic and is a, is a, is a process. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about the stuff that's come out of the big anxiety festival um, in terms of how the arts operate in that space and how it speaks to um, 
care regimes or ways of understanding well-being? Yeah, so I guess um, uh, the kind of model that um, the festival or the kind of theory that this kind of um, uh, coming together around is the is an interdisciplinarity that sort of creates a, a third space for engagement uh, between the arts, science, and people, communities, um, people of lived experience. Um, and so uh, this comes out of sort of bigger research that Jill Bennett, my um, boss, and Lisa Muller and Lynn Froggett and others are, are working on. Um, but I guess the kind of, the sort of foundation of the kind of work that the big anxiety is doing is about sort of um, not leveraging but sort of harnessing this kind of uh, uh, the idea of these um, communities of lived experience of survivors of people working to change things as creative agents and they're brought together with you know technology and science and and artists to sort of create something bigger than than sort of all of us can do by ourselves, I guess. Um, and so it's, it's a great, I mean, I've always worked in interdisciplinary um, art spaces and over the last few years have been working in spaces that are uh, more connected to um, to space other kinds of spaces of care, including sort of healthcare, um, but really sort of looking at it from the, the grassroots, from, from community-led an artist-led action rather than this top-down, you must have art therapy kind of um, approach. Um, so I'm kind of really interested in, in working in these spaces. And, you know, so the Parramatta um, Paragirls was a group of women that we worked with um, last year in 2017 and made a project that was a memory project for them but really enabled them to, um, to stop reiterating the trauma of their experience of institutionalization, like in, in a, as a physical manifestation of them talking to others about this. I mean, a lot of these women who are institutionalized, they've been part of the Royal Commission, they've been, you know, they've been telling these stories for generations. And so, you know, Jill's team was basically working with them to create a VR experience and, uh, you know, including sort of audio, um, that was taken from the women uh, engaged in this project that people could kind of immerse themselves in and 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 understand that trauma from an embodied perspective, but without having to re-traumatise the, the women involved. So that's kind of one project. That was a major commission of the last um, festival. Um, I guess one of the things that I'm sort of really interested in is the that everything is everything that we're doing is interconnected. We can't have a healthy arts and cultural kind of framework if we're falling off the edge of a cliff of environmental disaster. If people are, um, are so poor that they're being driven to suicide by robo-debts. Like, these are things that are, are sort of really kind of um, uh, strongly coming through at the moment, the, the amount of um, the kinds of bureaucracies that actually push people over the edge as well. And of course, these these are sort of traumas that have been with set with you know our first peoples since um, you know uh, Europeans settled on this land and have been part of that. Um, so we're working with some incredible women this year um, who are elders at, of the APY lands in Central Australia, and they are. Um, they're working on projects that are trying to connect with a uh, younger generation of people who are um, suiciding. And so it's one of those, like, it's an incredible uh, privilege to be part of this work that these women are doing, uh, the uh, Anangdu women, um, and many of whom are Nankari healers, and we're doing a VR project with them. Um, but it's the reason that we're doing this work is because people are dying, and people are dying at extraordinary rates at the moment and it's uh, and it's sort of something that's just being totally brushed under the carpet so I can't remember what the question you asked was but well you've driven us to <laughs> the, to the cliff uh, no um, yeah I mean it's it's 
very oh i'll go i'll get back to i think you were talking about what art can do i guess mm. um one of the um the main themes of our festival this year is empathy and sort of creating um situations engagements transactions um with people that can kind of push this idea that art can change people's minds a bit further so that's what we're kind of focused on at the moment so I'm curating a project with Jill called the Empathy Clinic. Um, that's our sort of big um, exhibition show. And they're also working on the development of a, an app um, that tracks this, um, tracks this engagement and whether actually change uh, that you have in these kinds of environments, you can sort of walk away from that environment and reconnect to somehow and, and actually find out whether that transformation has a bit more longevity than just the moment you're experiencing the work. Yeah. Um, we've, we are over time, um, but I'm aware that we started late and that it would be great to hear from people um, in the audience as well before we take ourselves out for a drink in the foyer. Um, but maybe just on that feelings theme and, um, and, and emotion, um, I'm interested to know, like, how does everyone feel about the election this coming nine days? Yeah. Go how, how do people feel about the election? Like, what is, is there anything that you can feel hopeful about? Or is there anything just batshit crazy that you want to share that hasn't already been splashed all over the media? I think, you know, a lot, we're pretty old as a cohort, <laughs> right? We've been through, we've been through elections for at least a couple of decades and I'm just I guess as a human I'm really tired of oppositional politics yeah. I'm really over it and I'm sure everybody is and every single election seems to this seems to be this contest of we will do this and we will do that in opposition to you and so the things the kinds of things that we've been discussing tonight like universal basic income they need to come out of a, of a shared and generous context in which people decide to work together to make things better for people. And so I'm just, I'm just really keen that artists remember that they're citizens. You don't have to do everything through your art practice. You can engage in other forms of community work and, and make yourself useful um, to create the kind of change that you want to see in the world. Um, and I guess that's why I think, you know, do your research on who your member is, what they stand for. That's all on the NAVA website, Yeah, do way. all of that work because you can, be, you can be useful, you can make change and you can start that from the ground up in the community that you're in. Um, so that's what I have to say about it. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. On the, the evening of the state election, we hosted a free film and food night for community and it was... Um, uh, we were showing the eviction documentary about Sirius. And I really thought in my own bubble that New South Wales would get rid of the Liberals. And they didn't. Well, we all know that. So I don't know. And I don't want to bet. Um, I think we all need to get out there and advocate for that kind of change. But I'm not holding my breath because... You know, some people really like Clive Palmer. Yeah, and I don't get that. But they exist, and I need to respect their opinion. But I want change, you know. It's like I want to feel like 07 when Kevin, 07. <laughs> you know, after 12 years of John Howard, that's all I knew. Like, talking about my age, that's all I knew was John Howard growing up. But I'm not holding my breath. But I think we all need to participate to make that change. <laughs> We're going down the line. Yeah, I'm also not a not a sort of betting <laughs> person. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I would I would put yeah, I wouldn't yeah, it's it sort of gives give me a lot of anxiety thinking about the election actually. Uh, I'm 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 at the real extreme of high information voter. I, I, I like consume intense amounts of um, 
like political and stuff and I also advocate like strongly on a lot of issues like data privacy um uh like digital ethics uh you know indigenous sovereignty over like data and um like there's there's a there's and it's the thing is and and also just you know race I think my my twitter has just become like oh my god fucking white supremacy holy shit <laughs> like like why isn't everyone freaking out about this like it's kind of like we we we're so we're so far away from climate change um solutions when we have like nazis in the street it's just like like we will they they will literally kill us before we have like a solution to this massive massive something to look problem. forward to yeah <laughs> and so it's just like you know it's just like oh my god i'm freaking out about this but i'm also like the other great thing is like there's heap of like direct action happening like I've been pulled into two anti-racism organizations, one called Democracy in Color, which is totally non-affiliated, and another doesn't have a name yet, but they're doing some amazing work in Democracy in Color is just going out and campaigning. So they're campaigning in the seat of banks. We're doing like phone banking um, three times a week uh, and door knocking, um, and we had a huge impact in the in the in the marginal seats during the uh, the marriage equality survey and. Um, actually, and and was they were the only presence actually in in um, for in favour of um, gay marriage in Western Sydney because marriage equality basically put zero resources, and Ka Carrie who was by by herself as a as the lone marriage equality person out out in Western Sydney, and when 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 all the results came through, it was kind of everyone's like, oh, what, Sydney's so terrible, that blah blah, brown people hate gay people. It's just like, no, you just didn't put a dollar of funding in, and that's the thing that like. We we have to organize like this is like, and like with with you know like looking at arts organizations like, if we want a policy for like long term arts funding, it's like we have to have like a ten year goal, and a five year goal, and then work work towards the, twenty twenty two election, you know like that that has to be yet yeah, now like now is the time to start organizing, like the organized like I'm and I'm I'm engaged with a lot of like um, BLM activists overseas, and when they came over to Sydney for the Sydney Peace Prize, one of the amazing things was like. Like they've been they've been working on these campaigns for years, and it was only because, like, they got lucky. They got really lucky that it that it that that little Tinder like caught fire and became this huge thing on Twitter. But they've been working for five years to that moment. It wasn't like it wasn't just chance that oh my god, there's all these activists that all suddenly like, <laughs> you know, working towards a single goal. You know, it's just like no, it's hard work, and then it just then you sometimes then sometimes you get a bit of luck your way. So yeah. Hard work ahead, but mm. I am. No, I shouldn't say I'm hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> just just there. Just, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, likewise, I think um, I, I have no idea where this election is <laughs> going to go. But in terms of um, uh, what's been interesting is um, in the build-up to it, a friend of mine actually formed a political party, um, and his. Uh, reasoning was, well, there are all these micro-parties occupying the space with the idea of taking control of the Senate, and they're all wing nuts, you know. We've got Fraser Anning, you know, he exists, right? And and these things that are occupying space, and the only way to s counter that is to start occupying the space as well and start setting up things that are like, actually, no, screw that, <laughs> that's not okay, and we've got to have voices that are commensurate to that. Um, because we can, yeah, think, oh, my God, surely New South Wales won't vote back in the Liberals, and then, holy hell, we voted back in the Liberals. Um, and so when you asked before about political parties, I should probably give him a plug, because that's the Together Party. Um, and long-term community land trusts, um, advocates, one of their running members is a young female artist. Their policies are actually kind of awesome. Um, and he rang me up and said, do you want to run? I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm an academic, I'm not a politician. Um, but I was seriously tempted because it's like the only way we can claim this ground is to actually just friggin' well claim it, you know. We have got, like you say, we've got to organise and we've got, we can't just sit back and go, oh, well, everyone knows Donald st Trump's stupid, no one's going to vote for him and then go, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've actually got to claim the space um, because... Politics is getting weird. That's all we can say is it's getting weird. And so if we want to steer it, then we've got to kind of be in it um, or it's going to go really weird places. So, yeah, that's all I know. Oh, um, yeah, so I, um, yeah, I was going to say my, I said I'm a bit numb. That's, um, that seems to be the way that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling about this election. 
Um, yeah, you bring up an interesting point that you only knew John Howard. I, I came to Australia in 94, um, uh, three months in. Um, Paul Keating got onto the... Um, he got onto the television and he called Australia the ass end of the world. And I was like, oh, what a great country. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think it was like six months later and it was John Howard and that was it for like <laughs> a decade. Like it was just, just horrible. Uh, it was, I was, you know, it, it's really, it really is hard because I am, I, I think, a little bit, you know, uh, demoralized. Um, uh, um, but listening to all of this and listening to the racism is like, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at this. You know, this is all in alignment with the history of this country. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all there. It's, you, don't, you, don't, you, d you don't get around history. Mm -hmm. You don't. History is there and it unfolds. You know, it's, it, it, it has its own imminence and it will unfold out of that history. And if you can't deal with it in some way or find some way around it, you're, you know, it's going to continue. And, and that's really hard. I mean, I think what you've said to me, and I, and I actually have, I do have friends that are, have really helped me by getting up and stumping up and getting out there. I've got a friend who's running against Barnaby Joyce, mm. and I am so proud of this guy. And he, and he has so much given me hope, like just to watch somebody actually do something. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't have to sit on my hands. I can actually kind of get out there and, and try this stuff. And if you do, there are people out there, because he's got a, a great team that are obviously, you know, working their butts off to do it, you know. And then, and then I guess the other side of it, and this gets back to what this is about as well, is that I live in the town that, you know, is probably, it's a pretty, pretty solid Pauline Hanson voter base, you know, One Nation. And, I mean, because I live in a small town and a community where you can't just go to another pub because you don't agree with the people there, I have to live with them, and I, I can't just sit there and fucking spout my opinions, and I have to, and I have to try to listen to them and try to, and, and I mean, I had a really great conversation with another artist today about this exp very experience that, you know, many of these people, you look at them and they're, you know, they're, they're, in every other respect, they're pretty fucking awesome people, usually very community oriented, like they care about their communities, they, they go out of their way to, to support their communities in various ways. And and then they come back to you and they're like, no, all Muslims are fucking evil. We should we should kick them out. And you're like, yeah, yeah. We, we we basically don't talk politics. That's that's one of the ways that we do it. But but for me, and I don't know where this is going because I'm just dealing with it in a way that doesn't end the conversation immediately and it doesn't just shut everything down and shut down the relationship. I just try to hold the relationship open. I try to talk about it when we can, when it's not going to turn into a fight. And I'm trying to learn. Well, you know, because somebody's, you know, they're, they're getting that stuff from somewhere. They're getting that story that's very useful to them from somewhere. And that, and that you know, that story serves certain needs and, and, and it, it, it meets certain, you know, anxieties that they have about the world. And I'm thinking, well, you know, we should be able to come up with stories that speak to them too, you know, that tell that other side of it. Yeah, definitely. Nadina, can you take us home? Something constructive. Um, <laughs> well, just um, you know, reflecting um, deeply. Our word "nara" in um, in Gadigal language means like listening deeply, and and I think, but it's listening in a way of understanding, and and I think you know, there's a lot of correlations between the way that Aboriginal people have been treated historically in this country, and. And you know the the understanding that the government will never have the answer, you know, and and like with respect to my colleague Jess, you know, we have to as artists also reimagine, you know, what what this potentiality looks like, and you know, in 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 your visionary way of seeing it, what was out there wasn't working, and it wasn't going to work. So then, you know, I think you know with any movement like being the granddaughter of, of a freedom fighter you know, with any movement, rights are never given freely, they're fought for. And if we don't stop this kind of, you know, paternalistic way of, of you know, we'll be looked after, historically it's shown over and over again that we're not, you know, and whether as Aboriginal people or whether a, a, as a broader community, everything will be sold from under us, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. It's, it's been made very plain that we're all um, disposable, you know, and that lack of feeling, that lack of, you know, uh, that you were talking about, it's more than, um, 
you know, it's more than logistics and all of this other stuff. It's about our humanness and our spirit. And, and until we start value, valuing people, we're making these big cement cities where we're putting people in like pets or prisoners, but who are they making these cities for? Until we start to connect to that, you know, and, and the traces of, of our lives and all of our stories, then we'll continue to make no meaning of it. And, and for me, I see that, you know, um, if they want to know what artists need, then they need to ask us and let us do it because we're the only ones that have the understanding of what we need. So that's how I see it. That's great. Thanks, Nadina. Um, well, thanks, uh, thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. And thank you, Beck Dean, Jez Cook, Jahan Kanga, Louise Crabtree, Alex Wizer, and Adina Dixon. Thank you, and see you outside. Head to our website, visualarts.net.au, for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.